how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. To infinity and beyond! Some people without brains do an awful lot of talking, don't they? It's classified. You talking to me? I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. I can't lie! Expecto Patronum! Entertainment X. You never know what you're going to get. For this episode, I chat with Andy Wolk. Andy and I talk about his writing and directing career. We talk about criminal justice on HBO, The Sopranos, and so much more. He also breaks down his life path and the intuition that he's had in directing that path on the journey that he's wanted. And we talk about the future of entertainment as we very well may know it and so much more. So I really do hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did having the conversation with Andy Wolk. Keep on keeping on. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe. And today with me on the phone is Andy Wolk. Andy, how you doing? You know, Clayton, all things considered, pretty good. Um, good. It's, a, it's a tough time, but we're doing okay out here. Are you doing a ton of remote work? You know, I am doing, you know, I, I have been directing a ton of, and can't really direct when this is going on. So, uh, but I've been doing work for the Directors Guild. We've developed a course for first-time episodic directors. We've been doing that. I've been doing uh, a big screenwriting workshop. I'm doing for the University of Pennsylvania, developing uh, also a, a sort of how to direct with a camera for Carnegie Mellon's drama department, which is where I got my MFA. So I've been busy with a lot of that stuff, which has been has been good. It's uh, it's not like directing, but it's um, and I'm not I'm not in the middle of writing anything now, which is good because I find uh, it's a tricky time to sit down at the computer and write. Isn't it? It is. It yeah. is. And I'm curious. I want to just pick your brain here real quick on this. What do you think about the future here? Just in I mean, we're talking right now, April 22nd, 2020. What do you think in terms of this, the tel- upcoming television season? Do you think things are going to well, what do you think it's going to look like? Oh, well, everything is, you know, everything is going to change. Um, you know, I think that it's going to be very hard. You know, when you make a television show or a movie, it involves a large number of people, a big crew working very closely with each other, lots of uh, handing off of equipment, but sitting next to people. You sit next to the script supervisor and a DP at the monitor. You're close with the actors. You There's equipment. This lens is handed from this person to that person. Um, hair, makeup. What about actors who have to be in close, intimate scenes or in large crowd scenes? Right. So you you have to, in some way, I think there's a really big rethinking of that going on. Uh, you know, I you know I've certainly talked to people on on shows that that I've been involved with, and that, you know people are thinking about a smaller size of crews and can you test everybody every day when they come to the set. Um, how about you know what about food food is another thing when you when you think in in a huge way when you when you think about uh well you think it's true about theater it's true about film where everybody eats together so you have breakfast you have craft service you have lunch every day and that's always been done kind of cafeteria style you get on the line and you take some uh, some meat and some vegetable and some rice and some salad well 
that's going to change. That will change. It'll have to be much more prepackaged individual meals. What about silverware? What about hand? You know, all of this Jeez. stuff, I think, is being um, rethought. And it's just hard to imagine when it can when it can start up safely uh, before there's a vaccination. That's so true. Do you think television or film will start up before live theater? Um, you know, that's a really good question. Um, I think some television will start up beforehand. Um, but theater, you know, for example, like the tour that you're doing with, uh, which Susanna is, uh, directing, you know, you, a lot of where you're going to be, I think in the next month when it restarts, if it does restart is in, in areas where it maybe hasn't been as, um, uh, serious a uh, outbreak as it has in big cities like New York and Los Angeles and Chicago. Um, so I think there's a possibility, of course, that some of that stuff can start sooner. But, you know, un until there's much more widespread testing and testing of antibodies and, I, you know, I don't see it happening in the next, uh, you know, maybe September seems realistic. Yeah. No. Or, or, or maybe it seems like wishful thinking. I don't know. I know it. I know, and I did. You know, I don't mean to make this a pandemic conversation. I think it's just interesting to hear your point of view. You know, coming from LA yeah, and what sure. have you. And it's just, yeah, yeah. No, I guess, yeah. It seems at this point, realistically, best case would be September. It would be the fall. Sometime Something the fall. like that. Yeah. I guess we'll just have to see where it goes. But I would like to take it back to the beginning of time for you. And sure. kind of get an understanding of your entertainment dreams as a child. Well, as, as a child, you know, for me, um, I always liked stories and storytelling and theater. And, and that has been maybe the one biggest constant for me in that I think of myself as a storyteller. I like telling stories. I like having stories told to me. So... Um, and I always was going to be a writer and I started out, I did a lot of writing in for, you know, high school newspapers and the local paper. And I, and I never really and I thought I would write fiction mostly. And when I got to college, uh, I, I had always loved theater. My, my parents, particularly my mother was an enormous, uh, theater buff. In fact, she, I don't know if Susanna ever told you this, but my, my mother had started going to theater when she was a little girl growing up in uh, in Newark, New Jersey, and going to New York. So she has had, she's no longer alive, this spectacular collection of playbills going back to the mid-30s, to when she died in 2005. And when she died, I, I sort of inherited them, and I had gone to many of the plays with her, and we cataloged them, and we ended up donating them to the University of Florida, where there's an Edith Wolk playbill collection now that you can go to the library and, and, and see. It's, it's, you know, I only tell you this because it shows that, you know, I come from this theater background in some way, although they, you know, and when I was in college, I decided I wanted to write a play. I saw there was a one-act play contest, and I wrote a play for it, and it won. It was put on, and it won, and it was directed by a student. I was a junior at the University of Pennsylvania, and I thought, well, I could direct it better than this guy who directed, even though I knew nothing about directing. <laughs> and uh, But I, I became involved with the, the theater group 
which was really great. And these two guys came down to run the, run this from Yale. They got and they were amazingly inspiring as director and as people. And they really inspired me. Well, I want to do this. You know, I want to have a career doing this. You know, I started directing plays in college, and in some ways, what what they were teaching or what they were embodying was that being a good director, in some sense, meant also being a good person, someone who's caring, someone who's compassionate, supportive, someone who's really respectful of everyone in the company, and that the director's job in many ways is to create a, a, a safe space, you know, to have a very, po- as uh, I think Susanna would say, a positive kind of room. And yeah. that in the, in the process that you could then foster real imaginative exploration. Um, so as a director, like that's the way you are in the world. And that was very, um, influential to me and, and you know when I started directing there and then uh, you know and, and I wanted to write also and I got uh, a, a big fellowship sort of like a Rhodes scholarship called a Turon scholarship when I graduated to go to England and I was supposed to study but instead of studying I just went to work in the theater in London for about a year and a half and I got to direct plays and, and it was very uh, it was like, oh, this is what a life in the theater is like. And I got, I went back. They, when I was there, I got a, uh, admitted to Carnegie Mellon, which you know, as you know, has a great drama school. Yeah. And at Carnegie Mellon, I was there, and I was writing, and I was directing, and I, and, and Carnegie Mellon was is also very traditional in some way, and I was not that traditional. But there was a guy who came to Carnegie from uh, Cal Arts to teach. And he and I hit it off and we formed, we were doing more experimental work and we formed a theater company there and we got some grants and, and the work that we were doing at Carnegie was people heard about it in New York and all over Europe. So we, we got invited with this company as I graduated to go to La Mama in New York, which as you know, is a great off, off Broadway theater. And then to live in Europe for a year in Amsterdam, basing, basically in Amsterdam and touring all over Europe, doing these two plays that were kind of experimental that I, that I wrote with the company. And, um, they were, you know, so it was a really, I had gone from, you know, not knowing much about really what professional theater is to being in this world. And the thing that was very important to me was that, when we got back to New York and I left, you know, I kind of had, had enough of living in a group and a company and I left the company, but we put the play on plays on again at La Mama and somebody saw one of the plays and wanted to make a movie out of it. And this is a guy who became a, a, a very good director and he and I became friendly and he, he really is the person who launched me into doing movies while I was, while I was doing theater. Um, and what happened, uh, tell me if I'm telling you too much here. No, Clay. no, this is perfect. So what happened was when I got back to New York, you know, I, um, 
you know, I had I'd left this company, which was good for me. Uh, but and I had to support myself. And like a lot of people do, I, you know, I cobbled together a number of I was teaching acting at Brooklyn College. I was uh, going to work then at Manhattan Theater Club and Manhattan Theater Club was just starting out. And if you recall the way all things are connected, that, um, you know, I said that these two guys, Tom Bullard and David Shookoff, had come to uh, to Penn. And, they were, and Tom was now the number two person at Manhattan Theater Club, which was at the time in the Bohemian Social Hall on East 73rd Street. And he brought me he brought me on so that I suddenly was at Manhattan Theater Club directing and casting and um, uh, doing literary management all basically hit the same time as the theater was sort of taking off and becoming um, uh, really, you know, made what, what it is now and kind of major force in New York theater. And, you know, consequently for me, this was a really great experience because, for you know, we were... We were doing maybe 15 plays a year. We had a cabaret space, and we um, we had two theaters, and and then when we, and so and I was auditioning literally thousands of people. And you really, you know, for someone who wants to be a director, sitting in all these auditions with really good directors, a lot of them, you learn you you learn first of all not to be scared of actors, which is I'm sure you discovered many directors are scared of actors (laughs) and uh you learn how to talk to them and work with them and you you get i mean i you know there were really smart people i was working with lynn meadow who you know has run manhattan theater club for you know 45 years now and uh and tom bullard and various other people you really learn you know your your taste improves and i'll give you a real i mean the whole world came through our doors and there wasn't an actor in new york that we didn't know or see and i'll give you an example the we decided we had this cabaret space and we decided we would spend the year and we would do tributes to different composers and the the first one we chose was charles strauss because annie had just opened on broadway and annie was you know this huge hit yeah and we were going to do, we, we, we decided we'd have, uh, we'd have four actors in it, three adults. And then he said he had this little girl, her name was Kim Fedina and she would, um, she, he would get her, she was one of the orphans in Annie and he would get her out of the performances and she would be the fourth one. And I was really happy about this because man, I didn't have to, um, audition any little girls and that was great and then we we sort of decided well what if she had somebody gets sick and she's got to go on and annie we need an understudy and we had never had understudies before at manhattan theater club this was the first time and it was going to be a little girl and so it was my job to find the girl and uh, you know as i said we were like obsessive about auditioning so i probably auditioned hundreds maybe three four hundred little girls and 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 that's also their mothers and the kitty agents who are vicious but finally we find this one girl and she's great 
So we hire her and she comes to every rehearsal and she's in the theater and she knows the show and she loves it. She's great. And she works incredibly hard and she isn't going to get to go on. And I went to Charles Strauss. You know, Charles Strauss is a big composer, you know, not only Annie, but Applause and Bye Bye Birdie. And I said, look, you've got to give this girl a chance. Give her, you know, an, an opportunity to uh, to go on. And he said, no, not going to do it. You know, Kim Fedina isn't going to miss a performance and she's very good. So I kept bugging Charles. And I got Lynn Meadow to bug him and people in the theater to bug him. I think at the time, the bartender in the cabaret was John Patrick Shanley. Uh, you know, the playwright of yes. doubt, and stuff like that. So it was everybody. And so finally, Charles Strauss comes to me and he says, okay, she can go on in the last performance. And I said, great, and, and you better be there. And he said, oh, I'll be there. It's the last show. So this girl goes on and she kills. I mean, Clayton, it was spectacular performance. And afterwards, I, I go to Charles. I said, she was good, isn't she? And he said, oh, very good. And I said, so are you going to make her one of the orphans in Annie now? And he said, no, she's going to be the next Annie. Yeah. And the girl, the girl was Sarah Jessica Parker. Oh, my God. So, oh my God. I, I mean, that was that sort of world. And, and that's really where, in some way, I had, you know, a lot of um, a lot of training in terms of acting, directing, you know, working in that kind of world. But. You know, in some way, the thing, you know, to sort of pull the other sort of wheel close, that director who I had met, who'd seen the play a couple of years before, La Mama had, a, had had a success with a movie uh, called Little Darlings with Christy McNichol. And he was going to do another movie with Christy, and he wanted me to rewrite it. And he basically, the movie was called The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia with Dennis Quaid and uh, Mark Hamill and Christy McNichol. And basically, Ron forced the studio to hire me because, you know, in Hollywood terms, I was a I, I was a nobody. I was, you know, looking up at the bottom. But I rewrote the movie, and the movie was successful, and that sort of launched me kind of in the world of Hollywood. So I was able to, you know, I ultimately left, then I left Manhattan Theater Club. You know, I still kept directing plays in New York, but was uh, much more, you know, focusing on, on writing and then ultimately on directing. What was the journey with uh, the night the lights went out in Georgia with rewriting it? What was well, that like for you? I mean, that's just a conversation you're having with him. You guys are going through it. Well, no, I mean, it, when when he offered it to me, and I was living in New York, and he was in L.A., the movie ultimately shot in Chattanooga, Tennessee, But and here I was, I was working at Manhattan Theater Club. Right. It was, you know, it was a great job. People would kill for that job, but it, believe me, it did not pay a lot of money. And the next day, I was on a plane to Los Angeles, staying in a big hotel, <laughs> and you know, meeting, meeting with studio executives and, you know, hatching a plan to rewrite it. And so much of the rewriting happened before the movie started. And then I was on location in Tennessee 
for a great part of the movie. And it was, <clears throat> you know, it, it was pretty extraordinary because I had never <clears throat> been on a movie set before. And I didn't know anything about cameras. I, I knew a lot about stories and actors, and I could be very helpful with that. And to be thrust into the first movie you do and to be on location, you know, it's like you're in a, when you're on location, maybe it's a little bit, <clears throat> a little bit like uh, you feel on tour with Waitress, but, you know, you're in your own sort of hermetic, uh, self-contained universe and, um, you know, you're, you're in some small town and rules are, are, are made to be, um, made to be broken in some way. So it's, you know, being on location, it, particularly in that time in the, you know, in the early eighties was, um, you know, I mean, it was just eye opening for me and really learning how to, you know, now deal with another level of actors and a type of acting, which is, you know, movie acting is real or television acting is very different than stage acting, just as rehearsing for movies and TV is very, very different for both. So that that to me was 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 really great. And and that was that experience was what sort of enabled me to leave Manhattan Theater Club, which, you know, you can you know, when you work in a big theater institution like that, that's taking off, it's, you know, having a lot of success. And, and, and you know, we we had done Ain't Misbehaving, which I had cast. And we've done a number of shows, Crimes of the Heart that mass appeal that we're moving to broadway yeah but you you have to in some way subsume your personal goals to those of the theater and if you want to direct then you know it's not something ultimately that is uh at least for me it wasn't the best place to be you know and a lot of people you know it, it's very different being on the the staff of the, this great theater and then being out in the world on your own as a freelancer. And, but it was the right call for me. Was it a lot of conversations with yourself to make that decision or is kind of knowing where you needed to be? It's it sort of, you know, it, it, that's a good question. It sort of felt, you know, as I think about it now, it just felt inevitable that, you know, I, you know, when I looked around, after I came back from all this time in Tennessee, and they were very nice to let me go, uh, and I looked around, I realized, I, I'm, not, you know, I'm not gonna be able to really advance very far as a director here, as someone working in the theater. Yes, but you know, not not as a director, and it just seemed inevitable that that I had to go. And you know, one of the the toughest things in that kind of thing is when you start out. And, you know, when you when you work at a place like Manhattan Theater Club, you call people up and it's uh, hi, I'm Andy Wolf from Manhattan Theater Club. And uh, people take your call yeah. no matter where they are at movie studio. When you're just, you know, a yabo on the street, it's a little different when you're starting out. Yeah. 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 That's 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 a good point. Uh, screenwriting and this first one being on set in Tennessee. Are there standout lessons with storytelling uh, you know, dramatic need of the protagonist, antagonist. Does anything stand out in your mind that you were learning right off the bat with this first, you know, well, right and shoot? When I, well, that's a good question. It was less, when I decided I wanted to to write screenplays, it was really before The Night Lights went out in Georgia, 
and I was living in New York and I've been working and I re- one of the things I realized in Manhattan Theater Club was that I really wanted to do movies even even sort of before that or right around that time and I said I felt what I should do is teach myself how to write a screenplay you know I mean maybe there some of those screenplay books were around uh, you know I don't know if they're any good I don't but I just I took there was a movie that I really really liked which was Kramer versus Kramer I don't know if you've seen the movie with Dustin Hoffman and Meryl yes. Streep. And it's an incredibly well-structured movie. And it was playing at a theater in New York, uh, the Paramount Theater, which was at Columbus Circle. It, it isn't there anymore. It was a, the building has you know, been redone. But it, it was playing there, and it was sort of down the street from me. I lived on 76 and Broadway. And I would go to that movie theater, and I would get a ticket for like maybe the noon show. And I would sit in, you know, in the aisles in movie theaters where they have those little blue lights running so, so you don't trip and stuff like that. Yeah. I would sit on the floor along those blue lights so I could see. And I would outline the movie as I was watching it. And I would watch it over and over again. I would like stay there a whole day. And until I had a complete outline of how that movie was structured, how characters were set up, how you end the first act, what what the second act is, what the, a reversal is, a- everything that you know I felt in terms of drama. I mean, I'd learned a lot about drama at Carnegie Mellon, and you know, I, I had a pretty good idea. But I basically, and this was you know before I, I certainly didn't have a VHS play or VCR, and uh, you know, I don't know. This maybe was just as that was starting up so i didn't have you know i didn't have the access to it but i basically taught myself what screenplay structure is by sitting on the floor at the paramount theater and and outlining kramer versus kramer and that that was gave a very very good basic understanding of protagonist and antagonist three a three-act structure the climax the end of the set all that stuff which I still use and think about a lot today. Uh, but that's really where I started to, um, to teach myself to be a writer. And then, you know, then it's just writing. Then, you know, the, the toughest thing about writing is, you know, putting your butt in the chair and sitting down with a yellow pad or a computer and writing. And that, you know, I just, and even though I was working a lot at Manhattan Theater Club, I would write, I would come home, and if I wasn't seeing a play or, you know, at the time I also directed some stuff back at Brooklyn College, if I wasn't doing any of that, I would write, and I would always write to like three or four in the morning. And, uh, you know, trying to, you know, doing it basically every day, pretty obsessively doing it. Yeah. Yeah, with your, I noticed I had read you had to have a lot of legal themed, you know, movies. You've written a lot of legal themed movies. And right. I'm curious, what has been your research process for those? Of course, it varies depending on what the project is. But are you well, reaching out to people? Or are you? Well, I'll tell you that the, the history of it, which uh, you know, a tremendous amount uh, involves my brother, who I wrote all the legal thing theme movies I did. I did with my brother, who was a criminal defense lawyer in uh, in New York City, and and we you know we co-wrote all those movies, but. There, it's a more interesting story or interesting story of how we got there, which is that 
you know, when I, um, when I, after I left Manhattan Theater Club and I was writing and I was, um, I was also doing consulting for public television for great performances in New York. They had known me and they'd hired me. Um, and it was another one of those cases where they offered me a full-time job being working there. And I just didn't want a full-time job. I wanted to be free to write and direct. And, but when I was there, we developed a project about of uh, Hollywood movies that would be set in Hollywood in the 30s. And I wrote the first one. And the first one was uh, about a, a, an actress in the 30s whose life was manipulated by her agent and uh, her love life was awful and she wanted to break out of it. And it was a really good role. And we got uh, Michelle Pfeiffer to star in it. And a very good television director, Paul Bogart, directed it. And the movie did very, very well. I, I won the Writers Guild Award, which is a big deal. Yeah. Um, it got great reviews and everywhere and great ratings. And they wanted to do more. So the head of uh, the whole project called me. It, it, I was living in New York still. And it, on, he had this big office on 58th Street. And he called me into his, um, his office and... He said, listen, tell me the story that you want to do next. So I told him the story and he said, that's great. We will do it, you know, and you'll write it. And I said, great, but I also want to direct it. And he said, no. And, and, and I said, what do you mean? He said, no, you know, you, you did the last one and you wrote a great script. We got a big star and a great director. We'll do the same thing. And I said, but listen, and this guy was, you know, I'd worked with this guy for years and we were very friendly. I said, David. It's me, you know, I had, you know, by this point, I had directed short films. I had, you know, directed a lot of plays. I said, you know, you know me, you know my work. This is public television. You should give me a chance. This is uh, really uh, like off-Broadway. You should be giving me an opportunity. I made a great case, and he said no. Huh. I, said, I said, really? He said, no, you know, we're going to do, that's what we're, we're going to do. And I said, well, okay. And. I walked to the door. He had this very big office. And I walked to the door. And I got to the door. And he said, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm leaving. You told me I can't direct this. And he said, well, you know, <laughs> you still have to stay and talk about writing the script. I said, well, if I can't direct, I won't write the script. And I walked out onto 58th Street. And I kind of said, what have I done? Yeah. It's, uh, right. you know. But it was like the right call. You know, I turned down a lot of money. But it was the right call for me. And, you know, I, and the lesson is, I think, if you, you know, have a dream and you want to um, in some way uh, make it happen, at some point you, you're going to have to draw that line in the sand. And shortly thereafter, a while thereafter, I was actually called to be on a murder jury in New York. There had been a crack murder in Harlem. And the, um, the horrible, horrible thing. And I was selected for the jury, which shocked me. I never thought I'd be on it. On and we were sequestered. The trial lasted a few weeks. And it was an amazing experience. Really extraordinary. Highly recommend jury duty. Uh, and afterwards, I had a call. At some point afterwards, I had a call from um, HBO. And, and the executive at HBO 
was a former agent of mine from ICM. I was represented at ICM at, at, for a little while at the time. And he said, hey, you know, we want to be in business with you. You know, we, I thought your Michelle Pfeiffer script was great. What do you want to do? And I, I told him about this trial and how everybody lied and you never could figure out who told the truth. And I wanted to do something about the criminal justice system. And he said, okay, great. And I said, but the other thing is, I want to direct it. And he said, you can direct, if, if, we, if you write a good script and we get a good cast, you can direct it. So it, it, that was like an amazing, great opportunity. I had to write a good script. And luckily, you know, I was able to work with my brother who was in the thick of the criminal justice system. And, you know, as a defense lawyer and he'd been doing it for years. So his, you know, as we developed the story, his experience really was crucial in terms of giving that script. And then the other scripts that we subsequently did, all the Defenders movies and whatnot, a uh, huge dose of verisimilitude. And, you know, one of the things that happens is that movie for HBO was very, you know, they, the script was really good. And we got Forrest Whitaker and then Anthony LaPaglia and Rosie Perez and Jennifer Grey to be in it. And the movie was quite successful. And when you do something like that, that is so heavily invested in the uh, legal world, criminal world, then you get offered a lot of other things that are in the legal criminal world, which, you know, and that's how that sort of comes about. Yeah, and they just were approaching you after that, at that point. Um, gonna... Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, people said, well, I saw I saw Criminal Justice on HBO. We have the rights to the old Defenders TV series. Do you want to do that? You know, they, they, you know, people are always looking for, you know, once you've proven you can do it, people want to hire you to do more of the same. Of course. How have you gotten better at asking questions in general? Or well, specifically, you know, with directing. Well, I think one of the things about directing is that preparation is everything. That you have to know the script, know you, you have to know where you are in the script, in the story. What makes that important and important to you. And then you have to know what you don't know. I mean, one of the things about directing and asking questions is, is that you don't have to know everything, particularly when you're starting out. And you don't know everything. And the way to, in a meeting or working with a director of photography or working with actors, is not to micromanage but to be able to ask questions you know i would call these what if questions what if we try this how do we do that that you that if you approach this with and and i would say the key thing particularly starting out that that is to have a lot of humility yeah and that humility is a very, very, you know, good, you know, knowing what you don't know and knowing to ask 
and being able to collaborate with other people. And that, so in terms of asking questions, it's, you know, sometimes you're confronted, you know, you know, for example, I was doing an episode of a show, um, The Practice, which is a big show on ABC for many years. And we were doing this episode where it starts with a car that has been overturned in the streets and it's, and in the car, there's the woman who had, the car had been carjacked. The woman, there's a dead body of the woman who was there. And how do you, and there's all the fire trucks there and EMT people. Now, I don't know anything about EMT and fire. And then they discover that in the, um, in the car is a little boy, a two-year-old is strapped into a car seat. And the only way they can get him out is they've got to cut through the car. Well, how do you do that? How do you cut through the car? You know, you read the script and you say, this is a challenge. And I don't know the answer to that. But it's like asking the questions. Well, what kind of car is it going to be? How are we going to, where are we, where are we going to shoot this? Are we going to shoot it on the streets? Are we going to shoot it on a studio back lot? That when you start to, um, I would say, um, ask asking questions, particularly in the beginning of <laughs> your collaborators, is a way not all, is a way to solve problems, and it's a way to activate your collaborators. Everybody wants to contribute, and then when you do that, the next thing that's really important is to be grateful that gratitude is as important as it can be with this that you know when someone does answer a question when you do work with someone the process of working in as you know you're an actor you know that it's marshalling you know a director's got to marshal an army and get everybody going forward in the same direction to in some way um, bring forth their vision. And that one of the things you want to do is make everybody feel that they are a very positive part of the group. And so as you, you know, asking questions is really good at the same time when you, particularly when you don't know the answer because you don't have to know every answer. Yeah. Does that, does that answer that question? It, yes, it does. No, I think it was a, those are really, really good examples. I just think it's interesting to hear the the process in which you learn understanding. But you're also making a great point with humility and knowing what you don't know and not being, I mean, I would guess I would use the word cocky, you know, overconfident, whatever you want to call it, well, to just really sure, settle into sure. like your understanding of what you know and what you don't know and then staying in your lane, I guess. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I would I would be remiss if I didn't bring up The Sopranos. Uh, sure. I'm an actual fan of that show. <laughs> and uh, many, 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 many people are. You stepped in to this. I mean, I don't know. Were you a cog in a machine? You stepped in to direct Boca, a fantastic episode. Oh, and, thanks. And, you know, but you, I, how, did you do any of the writing or they just give you a call and you kind of step in and... It's a no, that, you know, no, I didn't do any, any, I didn't do any writing on that. And, you know, in episodic TV, 
many of the times, much of the time when you direct, uh, is you're, you're jumping on a moving train. Yeah. And, or, or you could use it as example, you've invited, you know, someone's asked you to make dinner, but they're supplying the food, they're supplying the recipe, they're supplying the utensils and the cookware, and you're coming in with maybe your favorite knife or something like that. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a tricky kind of thing. And one of the things about the Sopranos when I worked on it is that it was very early on. So it had never aired. You know, I thought this was going to be great, but I think, uh, I think David Chase maybe, you know, didn't know if it was going to be good. And it was, it was really kind of a, um, a new thing. And, and it was filmed a little bit differently than most television episodes filmed in sort of longer takes, wider shots, not as many shots. And for me, you know, it's like the challenge. And, and I, one of the interesting things is that Tony Soprano went to the same high school in New Jersey in Essex County that I went to. (laughs) And, you know, and that he played on the baseball team and I played on the baseball team. And David Chase, who created the series, grew up in the next town over. So that when I was scouting locations for that episode, I was basically in my hometown, you know, and that was, you know, and a lot of the people I went to high school with were from mafia families. And the uh, I knew that world pretty well, which was was certainly great for me. The thing that that is most, you know, um, interesting about it in some way is that, you know, when you're doing a show like that, you have these very challenging things that you don't know, like know anything about. Like in this case, there were a couple, which was girls soccer, that there was a lot to do with girls soccer in the episode so my idea which which turned out to be a good idea was let's contact a high school girls soccer team we need a lot of players and let's get we ended up getting the new jersey state champions and let's get them and we'll do all and we will do all their drills and we'll have them and we'll choreograph the plays so that when we go to shoot it we we it looks as real as it possibly can can look and I think this that was like a great thing to do, because otherwise, if you're out there trying to wing it on the day, you're never going to get it done. But the preparation for that was, I, I think, re- because the whole episode hinged on it's a great soccer team and they love playing and then things go wrong with the coach. Right. The other thing that and and that where it's like your I think the things that make something happen where, where, you know, probably the most iconic scene in that episode is the pie in the face. And the, you know, in, in thinking about that, where, and this is sort of just a, a little bit the way, I, I don't know if all directors think like it's in the way I do. When we started talking about the pie in the face and we realized, and, and, and I realized when the hair and makeup people came to me and said, you know, when you hit her in the face with a pie, 
whatever kind of pie it is, it is going to take us probably three plus hours to redo her hair and makeup. So you realize you only have one shot at it. And so starting to think about it, and I think it was maybe written as a boss. Well, I don't remember what it was originally written as, but I decided we've got to do a test. So we sent somebody to one of those delis. You know those delis in New York where they have the display of all the pies going around on that circular thing? Oh, yeah. And so we sent someone to get about a half a dozen pies, and we got an extra. And we paid him, I don't know, 50 or 100 bucks, put a you know, plastic wrap around him and hit him in the face with all the pies till we found the one that looked the best because we knew we could only do it once. So we found it was a lemon meringue pie. So now we have a lemon meringue pie and in, in determining how to shoot the scene, you know, I said, well, look, we've got to shoot everything in the scene on both directions, on, on Uncle uh, Uncle Junior's direction and on the, the woman's, on Bobby's direction, we have to shoot it all. And the last thing we'll come to is we'll do the pie in the face. And we really have one, and we rehearsed it, you know, with a camera move, the handheld camera, and this and that. <clears throat> and we rehearsed it and rehearsed it and said, okay, now we did everything else. And the interesting thing was that when I'm, sh- when I'm shooting Uncle Junior's coverage, and she's off camera crying and doing this and that. She was not very good. And I was worried about it. I didn't know what to do. She was, you know, I tried to help her. She wasn't that good. Then we go, okay, now we're going to do the pie. We do the pie. It's great. He hits her in the face and she starts weeping. And she was so brilliant. And I just kept saying, I said to the camera operator, keep shooting. And we actually kind of hit her in the face a second time just to get more reaction and to have the, all the lemon meringue dripping down off her. And she just kept, kept going. It was it was pretty amazing. And, you know, but it's like one of those moments where it where, where you realize that act there's acting and then there's how how you can make it real and how it becomes real. And so, so that was, you know, for me, that kind of, um, moment, it sort of encapsulates, uh, a lot of what directing is in film and TV. I think there's something really interesting to just what I'm hearing in themes from this is it, it sounds almost theatrical. You only get one take on a stage each night and to have that confidence, you know, because in television and film, there's, you know, the understanding that we can do it until it's right or we can fix it in post or whatever. And right. for to have the confidence to be like, well, no, we're going to get it right once. And the willing, you know, the flexibility, I guess, to roll. Yeah, but there, there are many times, you know, and th- no, you're, you're right. I mean, one of the ways that I look at the difference between theater directing and film directing is in theater, you are rehearsing for, let's say, four weeks. And you're rehearsing and you're doing it over and over and over again and you're running it and you're doing it so the actors can take over and make it theirs when they're performing. And you as the director ultimately disappear. But when you're directing in film and TV, you're directing it so it only has to happen one time 
when the camera's in the right position and the actor's performance is right, and then you make it and control it and take over it in the editing room. And, and that's a real um, fundamental difference in the, um, in the two things. But there are many areas where in film, particularly when you're doing complicated sequences or stunts, where you only get, often with stunts, because of the danger involved, you only get one shot at it, or maybe two. And um, so you've got to, uh, you know, just, you, you know, again, it's about preparation and rehearsal. And a lot of times with stunts, you do rehearse you much more than on the day. You rehearse it beforehand. You do what's called a pre-visualization. You film it on an iPhone or something so you can see what it's going to look like. And then you, uh, you do it on the day, but you have a really good plan for it because it's so heavily rehearsed. Have any of these projects truly stumped you? in creating a solution, whether it be for shots or, you know, plot points and writing for screenplays where you've actually been severely stumped and needed to well, ask for help? Well, I would say that I'm always stumped reading the script where there's always, you know, I like on the last couple of times, I did an episode of Manifest that just aired and there was a, a scene where, somebody tries to commit suicide on, on the subway in New York and goes to throw himself in front of an oncoming train and he's tackled at the last minute by our heroes. You know, when I read that, you think, how are we going to do that? Right. And you're and then you kind of figure it out. Um, and uh, that's the fun. That's the challenge of it. There are, and almost always you come around and, and you do solve it. I would say the more, the things where I would say I've been stumped or not as successful are mostly things with, and, and this, I guess, is mostly in television where, you know, there are times where there's just an actor who you don't get along with or who you don't click with. And so they're going to do their thing and it's, you know, you're going to just, um, you're not going to feel that you have much um, uh, input or control or, over their performance and what they do. And that can be, you know, just, you know, wasn't, uh, they weren't having a good day or you weren't having a good day. And, uh, in, in many ways it just is what it is, but that that's happened, I think pretty rarely for me, but it's definitely happened where you think, Oh, you know, I, I'm not going to come back and do this. We didn't, uh, we just did not, uh, hit it off. And, and, you know, it's, you know, it can just be a personality kind of thing. That's the biggest stumping. I think that, um, that I felt usually the big physical visual challenges that are um, that you think, how are we going to do this? Those are the ones you'll, you end up liking the most because you solve the problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, you're bringing up, you're bringing up a really good point. And I know you said it happens very infrequently, but I guess learning how to communicate or communicate less 
<laughs> with yeah, someone no, that, that you're not, <laughs> you know, gelling with. Right. Or, you know, sometimes there, you know, in the times when it's happened, it's, it's always been with, you know, number one on the call sheet who's been in a series for a long time and is kind of sick of doing it. And, you know, you might be very enthused about doing it and they just want to get, get home and have dinner. Right. And that, that can be, uh, you know, reality for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a project you've done that has taught you the most about yourself or taught you a lot? And I know a lot of these projects have taught you a lot. Is one stand out in your mind? Well, I I would, you know, say that first movie, Criminal Justice. Yeah. You know, because you, you know, when you walk on the first day of shooting and you're walking, you know, this, we shot that in Pittsburgh and I'm walking to the, set from the hotel is right down the street and suddenly you see these huge trucks lining the street and you think whoa they have given this to me you know <laughs> I, you know don't they realize i'm you know i mean I, I i you know don't they realize i don't know how to do this i'm and you know i think that learning how to do it on that movie and get it was that to me was that first time where you know everything was um, was new and exciting. The you know now when you shoot things, doesn't matter if it's a movie or a uh, television show. You the dailies all are you know on the internet and they're you know you see anyway what you're shooting on the monitor. You don't really need to look at dailies in the same way. Um, but on that movie. You know, every night, you know, we're shooting on film. There was no, uh, they weren't coming out on VHS or anything, the dailies, early. Basically, everybody would go, the whole crew would go back to the hotel and sit in the ballroom and have pizza and beer and watch what you shot. Yeah. And you'd see those dailies, and there was one, you know, and it was, you know, it was like this camaraderie camaraderie of we're making a movie and that's what we did and that's what it looks like up on the big screen it's very different than you know looking on a little monitor or something like that and there was one time with that where the rosie perez's big scene in the courtroom where she calls out jennifer gray it's this fabulous scene it was out of focus and we're sitting there and it's out of focus and we had to go back, and, and she was so emotional and crying and yelling in the scene. And I had to go to Rosie and say, listen, and she was very inexperienced at the time. This was really only her second movie, and she didn't have any acting training. She'd been a dancer. And I said, Rosie, we've got to reshoot that scene. And that was a really tough thing to do uh, because she, I knew – and, and it, it turned out to be better, actually. Uh, but she had to really put herself through something uh, – incredibly emotional to do it and you know i think that just learning that you can um you know be the leader of the um of the army and you don't have to do it in a uh a bullying way but you can do it as i said with uh humility you know and and everybody was a was a really great thing and the the movie, if you see the movie, it opens with this spectacular crane shot. And we were going to shoot that 
towards the end of production. And one of the producers would always say to me, oh, you're going over budget here. You're doing this. You know, you're spending too much money. And if you don't wrap by such and such a time, you're not going to have the crane. And, you know, I really learned to say, I learned to deal with that kind of pressure, both to, in some cases, go faster. And somebody say, hey, this takes what it's going to take and we're going to do it and we're going to still have the crane and it's going to be okay. And just, you know, gaining, you know, the more you do something, the more confidence you get in being able to do it. And that is a big thing about directing because confidence isn't knowing the answer. Sometimes it's not, you know, as I said, not necessarily, um, you know, saying, you know, hey, not necessarily, you, you know, who to turn to for the answer. Um, and uh, I learned a tremendous amount on that movie, more than, you know, on, on any other one, I think. In life, what's most important to you? In life? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, my uh, my family, of course. You yeah. know, my family and, uh, you know, my kids, my wife, my, uh, my, my, my brother. I mean, you know, my parents were amazingly important to me. You know, how you grow up in the, and the values that you have. Uh, you know, those kinds of things. And then, you know, how you, you know, contribute to the world in, in whatever way you can in terms of, you know, somehow making it a better place, even if it's just providing entertainment or uh, and, and certainly looking for social change in this world. Yeah. Yeah. This is it's it's so nice to get a real breakdown of what you've done thus far. And where, mm -hmm. where you come from with family and those values yeah. and what your parents taught you. And I really appreciate you sharing all of that today with us. Mm -hmm. as, I, as I do wrap up here, I'm curious, is there, uh, metaphorically speaking, a word, a phrase, a thought, a short story that you'd put on a billboard for millions of people to see? Something that stands out in your mind as a, a lesson? As a lesson? Um... Well, you know, I'm not sure there's anything, uh, you know, I like what we were talking about before about humility, you know, and particularly in the, this time when there's so much uncertainty. Uh, I, I think that, you know, if we had someone who was president, which we don't, who could say, I, I don't know, but there are wise experts I'm going to turn to for answers. We're going to look for the answers together. That kind of thing, which a director can say, but also a leader can say, is, <coughs> is very um, important, I think. Um, yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know that you can't do it alone. Yeah. And none of us can do it alone. And, uh, you know, and that's how big things happen when it happens as a uh, as a group. I mean, that's the thing that, you know, for me, if you think back to when uh, for me going to to becoming involved in theater, when I when I sort of realized it was like this group activity, that there was a social element to it, that I that I liked that we're doing something together and we're making something together. 
<clears throat> and that is uh, something that um, I liked a lot. And I, you know, I, so if that makes sense, that makes total sense. I think you're absolutely right. I love it. I love that word, humility, and the idea of it. You know, knowing when to ask when you need mm-hmm. help. It makes everything. It makes everything better. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I really appreciate you chatting with me today. I oh sure, my pleasure. I'm very excited to share this. So I, I appreciate you taking the time to oh, uh, good. converse with me. Is there anything else you want to add before we end it? Here? Uh, so, well, when uh, when do you think you're going to get back uh, back on the road with waitress? September, September. is the word on the street. Word. Okay, we'll see. Well, that'll be good. That would be good. Um, no, I, I don't know. I think that the, the, the main thing that I would add is that you can do things simply that if you do it really well and really simply, and you're really, really prepared, you will, you have, you will create the, um, the way to succeed. Uh, Susanna has heard me say this many times, but when I was starting out in New York and, and I was um, really at the bottom. And, and I had a lot of friends who were writers, directors, actors, composers, musicians. And all of them were pretty talented, very talented. And the people who succeeded, and a, a number of those people really succeeded tremendously. People who succeeded were the ones who universally worked the hardest. And the ones who wouldn't take no for an answer, the ones who persevered, the ones who had that kind of um, humility and gratitude that I'm talking about. And there are people in that group, Clayton, who did not succeed. And they were talented people, and they, but they, they did not have that stick to and that ability to work with and accept other people and to work really, really hard. And those people today are really bitter about that, too, I would, I would add. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, not everybody succeeds to the level that they want to or that they should, you know, and they say, well, you know, I didn't have luck and stuff, but you make your own luck and, you know, you do it and people will will see that and and uh know that there's no doubt in my mind that's a really good point that's a really good point thank you for sharing so much good. today andy good well good i, I hope it was uh, good and, and good luck with everything clayton hey thank you ladies and gentlemen boys and girls andy wolk you've been listening to entertainment x the podcast you can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another Curiosity Conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. Entertainment X.